Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 22nd day of June, 2008. I'd like to encourage all of my listeners to visit the homepage at CorbettReport.com, where you can find documentation, including links to articles, videos, and other sources cited in today's episode, sorted by time index. As well, you'll be able to find our latest YouTube documentary on the front page of CorbettReport.com, updated every Wednesday. And also, you'll be able to find articles written by myself and contributors to the Corbett Report. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Our first story today comes from BBC News, 12th of June, 2008. Scottish Islamic State Plotted Plans to set up a secret Islamist state in Scotland were dismissed by two supporters of jihad, a court has heard. The pair said it could provide a safe haven for those who felt oppressed, London's Blackfriars Crown Court heard. Abid Khan from Bradford, West Yorkshire, said the only problem was the availability of weapons, the court was told. The 23-year-old and three others deny terrorism-related counts of possessing articles or documents. In the dock are Mr. Khan and Sultan Mohammed, 23, also from Bradford, Ahmed Suleiman, 30, from Woolwich, southeast London, and Hamad Munshi, 18, from Dewsbury, West Yorkshire. Jurors heard the state would also be run according to Sharia law and eventually be used as a base to discreetly train for attacks against non-believers. Our second story this week comes from naturalnews.com. Monday, June 16, 2008. U.S. School District to Begin Microchipping Students A Rhode Island school district has announced a pilot program to monitor student movements by means of radio frequency identification, RFID chips, implanted in their school bags. The Middletown School District, in partnership with Map Information Technology Corp., has launched a pilot program to implant RFID chips into the school bags of 80 children at the Aquidneck School. Each chip would be programmed with a student identification number and would be read by an external device installed in one of two school buses. The buses would also be fitted with global positioning system, GPS devices. Parents or school officials could log on to a school website to see whether and when specific children had entered or exited which bus, and to look up the bus's current location as provided by the GPS device. The American Civil Liberties Union has criticized the plan as an invasion of children's privacy and a potential risk to their safety. There's absolutely no need to be tagging children, said Stephen Brown, executive director of the ACLU's Rhode Island chapter. According to Brown, the school district should already know where its students are. This program is a solution in search of a problem, Brown said. Our final story this week comes from the Tennessee Center for Policy Research, June 18, 2008. Energy guzzled by Al Gore's home in past year could power 232 U.S. homes for a month. In the year since Al Gore took steps to make his home more energy efficient, the former vice president's home energy use surged more than 10%, according to the Tennessee Center for Policy Research. 
A man's commitment to his beliefs is best measured by what he does behind the closed doors of his own home, said Drew Johnson, president of the Tennessee Center for Policy Research. Al Gore is a hypocrite and a fraud when it comes to his commitment to the environment, judging by his home energy consumption. In the past year, Gore's home burned through 213,210 kilowatt hours of electricity, enough to power 232 average American households for a month. In February 2007, An Inconvenient Truth, a film based on a climate change speech developed by Gore, won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. The next day, the Tennessee Center for Policy Research uncovered that Gore's Nashville home guzzled 20 times more electricity than the average American household. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 47 of the Corbett Report. Problem, Reaction, Solution. Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel was an 18th century German philosopher, a man whose writings are famously dense, perhaps almost impenetrable, filled with jargon and the use of very specific terms which even readers of the original German find difficult to understand even in context. Hegel made a name for himself as a philosopher of note in his own time in late 18th century, early 19th century Germany, but the effect that he had on generations of philosophers to come is perhaps more important. What philosophers in future generations picked up on was Hegel's view of the unfolding of history. Hegel believed that in the natural world, Nothing ever really changes. The only thing that ever changes is the Weltgeist, the world spirit. Of course, there's much debate on precisely how Hegel uses this term and intends it to be understood, as there's much debate on many of the terms which Hegel employed in his dense writings. But some have taken him to mean that the entire history of the world has been the unfolding of one idea, the idea of freedom. This idea has been unfolding since the beginning of time through a system which has become known as the Hegelian dialectic. This system posits that any idea necessarily comes into conflict with its opposite. From this conflict of opposite ideas emerges a solution. That solution then comes into contact with its own opposite, producing another solution, and so on and so on and so on. Hegel's view of history, then, is necessarily teleological. It is heading towards a certain destination, that is, the spirit's realization of its own freedom. If all of this sounds confusing, don't worry. It's in large part meant to sound confusing. Let's take a listen to some of Hegel's writings. We're going to listen now to a short clip talking about Hegel's idea of the unfolding or the development of history from his Introduction to the Philosophy of History. Let's listen to this audio recording. The principle of development involves also the existence of a latent germ of being, a capacity or potentiality striving to realize itself. 
This formal conception finds actual existence in spirit, which has the history of the world for its theater, its possession, and the sphere of its realization. It is not of such a nature as to be tossed to and fro amid the superficial play of accidents, but is rather the absolute arbiter of things, entirely unmoved by contingencies which, indeed, it applies and manages for its own purposes. Development, however, is also a property of organized natural objects. Their existence presents itself not as an exclusively dependent one, subjected to external changes, but as one which expands itself in virtue of an internal unchangeable principle, a simple essence, whose existence, that is, as a germ, is primarily simple, but which subsequently develops a variety of parts that become involved with other objects and consequently live through a continuous process of changes. A process, nevertheless, that results in the very contrary of change, and is even transformed into a vis conservatrix of the organic principle and the form embodying it. Thus, the organized individuum produces itself. It expands itself actually to what it was always potentially. So spirit is only that which it attains by its own efforts. It makes itself actually what it always was potentially. That development of natural organisms takes place in a direct, unopposed, unhindered manner. Between the idea and its realization, the essential constitution of the original germ and the conformity to it of the existence derived from it, no disturbing influence can intrude. But in relation to spirit, it is quite otherwise. The realization of its idea is mediated by consciousness and will. These very faculties are, in the first instance, sunk in their primary, merely natural life. The first object and goal of their striving is the realization of their merely natural destiny, but which, since it is spirit that animates it, is possessed of vast attractions and displays great power and moral richness. Thus, spirit is at war with itself. It has to overcome itself as its most formidable obstacle. That development which in the sphere of nature is a peaceful growth is in that of spirit a severe, mighty conflict with itself. What spirit really strives for is the realization of its ideal being, but in doing so it hides that goal from its own vision, and is proud and well satisfied in this alienation from it. Now I've included a link not only to that audio clip itself in the documentation list for today's episode, but also to the text of the Introduction to the Philosophy of History, so you can go over that passage in writing, because if you're like me, it will probably take multiple re-readings of that passage to come to a deeper understanding of what's being conveyed there. But as an extract, I think it did contain a pretty good representative sample of Hegel's thought on the unfolding of history, including how the entire history of the world is really only the theater for the development or the unfolding of the spirit. 
and how the history of the world is really only the development of a spirit at war with itself in order to come to a self-realization. Again, this is all very abstract and sounds very philosophical and unrelated to the types of things that we cover on this news and information program. But I assure you, this is a fundamental point, and it does connect to what's going on in the world today. In Hegel's terminology, the dialectic, or that process of the unfolding of the idea at war with itself, rests on the terms thesis, antithesis, synthesis. That is, an idea, a thesis, comes into conflict with its opposite, the antithesis, and leads to a solution, the synthesis. It's important to note that this is a key method through which history does develop, regardless of whether or not you believe Hegel's metaphysical idea about the spirit unfolding. And, as always, this idea has been latched onto by those at the very top, who believe they can direct the unfolding of history by their understanding of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. This sounds complicated, but let's just replace some of the terms. Problem, reaction, solution. What is problem, reaction, solution? And how do the elite use it to direct society? First of all, you create the problem, but you get someone else to be blamed for it. First of all, you create the problem, but you get someone else to be blamed for it. You then report that problem through the media in the way you want it reported. Then you get the public to react to your problem by saying something must be done, this can't go on, what are they gonna do about it? And at that point, they, who have covertly created the problem and blamed someone else, who glean that reaction of do something, then offer the solution to the problems they have created. Problem, reaction, solution. Problem, reaction, solution. Problem, reaction, solution. Problem, reaction, solution. And it works like this. You've got the big central banks that took over the turn of the last century. Started printing the money. They own the money machine to print the money. If a country doesn't accept their central banks, the enemy has been involved in terrorism. Giant attack fleets are landing. Save them! The whole place is obliterated so that I'm the World Bank can come in and totally slay the population and vaccination start and suddenly everybody's sterilized and all the kids have got autism and we're here to help you! The soldiers are all dying for the flu uranium and sarin and DX in the vaccine. For the flu uranium and sarin and DX in the vaccine. Vaccination start and suddenly everybody's sterilized and all the kids have got autism and we're here to help you! We're here to help you! We're here to help you! The New World Order you know, there are certain species of insects uh, that are laid into other living insects, larger insects, and the babies hatch out and eat the inside of it out and then break it open and fly off. You just see this dead beetle, this husk laying there. That's what America is. We've got all these eggs in us. They're growing real fast. We're at death point. The country's probably going to die, folks. We're at death point. We're at death point. The New World Order is going to bust out of that using all our energy to set up the global empire to smash and destroy and mini-nuke everyone. We're at death point. The country's probably going to die, folks. We're at death point. We're at death point. Problem, reaction, solution. Problem, reaction, solution. Problem, 
reaction solution. Problem reaction solution. And it works like this. And in the UN, the EU could stand back and say, we are fighting against these evil right-wing Americans. When in reality, again, the creature that laid the eggs in us is sitting right over there in Europe. You understand this, folks? You understand this? And so it points at us. The system. The beast system points at America and goes, look at that beetle, it's spinning all over the place and going crazy and fighting everyone. And then when they're done with us, the brood hatches out, total global domination, total enslavement of you and your family. And you'll have just, I mean, Bush is energizing the phony left wing. They're hatching out everywhere. They're going to totally take over. And don't think these leftists are going to care when you're getting drugged off to a camp, having your guns taken. They're going to be chanting, going, finally the U.S. came to America and stopped this fashion takeover. It feels so good! It feels so good! Finally the U.S. came to America and stopped this magic takeover! It feels so good! It feels so good! Shut up! Shut up! We love the U.N. We love the U.N. We love the U.N. We love the U.N. And don't use the U.N. up to They said, fine. Is a popular, we'll start some new global organization. Well, NATO is now global, and it's going to be in Israel and Afghanistan and Iraq and, 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 and North Korea. We take that over, and it works like this problem, reaction, solution, problem, reaction, solution, problem, reaction, solution, problem, reaction, solution. We're fighting a push by a scientifically crafted dictatorship that is sworn to dehumanize you and your family. That entertaining and informing clip comes from something of a YouTube legend known by the handle of Nuff Respect. Nuff Respect has put out dozens of videos that are professionally produced and extremely informative, and I would suggest my listeners check out his YouTube account. I'll include a link to that video which I just played, as well as Nuff Respect's YouTube account in the documentation list for today's episode. Problem, Reaction, Solution. The thrust of today's episode really is encapsulated in that YouTube video. But let's take a look at some more research to try to further unpack and unfold this idea and see how it plays out in modern politics. I'm going to read a passage from a book called Order Out of Chaos by Paul Joseph Watson which is available from PrisonPlanet.tv. This book was written five years ago and is essentially about problem-reaction-solution and how that's the paradigm for what we know as false-flag terrorism, a phenomenon that we've discussed in great detail before on the Corbett Report. This helps give some of the philosophical background to false-flag terrorism and how it operates. I read now from a passage from Order Out of Chaos entitled Understanding the Hegelian Dialectic. Quote, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel was born in 1770 in Germany and became a successful philosopher of the mind, history, and religion during the 1820s. Although the Hegelian dialectic today manifests itself differently to how it originated under Hegel, the founding principles remain. Hegel proposed that all spiritual, intellectual, and historical development, whether negative or positive, progressed from the outcome of two opposing ideals. Thesis clashed with antithesis, and this produced synthesis. 
The modern-day application of the dialectic is used by the ruling elite to create mass groupthink that enables them to further their agenda without opposition. In its simplest form, it is brainwashing. In the past, the dialectic has been used to manufacture war. Both the Bolsheviks and the Nazis were funded and supported by the global elite. These two forces were then made to clash in order to foment the chaos of World War II. The widely used term amongst researchers today is problem-reaction-solution, and the tactic is mainly used to oppress populations, advance the police state, and further the geopolitical aims of the New World Order. It works like this. The manipulating body covertly creates a problem, and then directs the media to incessantly focus on it without recourse. Remember, you only need to control the top of the pyramid. Most media coverage is an exercise in regurgitating what the big newspapers and TV stations are reporting. The problem could be anything. A war, a financial collapse, a rash of child abductions, or a terrorist attack. The power of the media can create the false perception that a big problem exists, even if it doesn't. An example would be the child abduction epidemic during 2002, which was dramatized by the media, even though official figures confirm that child abductions have been decreasing yearly since the 70s. Another example is the SARS epidemic of 2003, which was a story created solely out of media hype. SARS killed a few hundred in a few months at time of press, while the common flu kills 250,000 a year. Once you have created this problem, you make sure that an individual, a group, or an aspect of society is blamed. This then rallies the population behind the desperate lunge for a solution to the problem. Something must be done, they cry in unison. The people that created the problem in the first place then come back in and offer the solution that the people demand. Remember, the people screaming for a solution do not know that the problem was artificially created in the first place. The solution to the problem is always a further curtailment of freedom and an advancement of one or more aspects of the New World Order agenda, whether that is geopolitical expansion, new laws, or the implantation of new societal worldviews. Let's look at a few examples. A terrorist attack hits America. Even though authorities claim they had no possible inclination that such an attack would happen, the culprits for the attack are named within hours of the event before any type of investigation has been concluded. The pictures of these culprits and their leader are flashed ad infinitum on worldwide television, therefore immediately providing the official version of events. The horror of the attack is so substantial that people immediately call for a restriction of personal freedoms and a foreign war to stop it from happening again. In the weeks and months that follow, the government of America restricts personal freedoms through legislation and launches a foreign war. I just described September 11th. A government arms a small country with chemical and biological weapons, which it then uses against another country. A few years later, the government that armed the country with chemical and biological weapons tells its people that there is a problem because a small country has chemical and biological weapons which it might use against another country. Despite some opposition, many people agree that the small country should be bombed and invaded. The government tells its army to bomb and invade the small country. I just described the first Gulf War and the 2003 war on Iraq. The media tell the people that child abduction is on the increase and is becoming a big problem. Pictures of young innocent children and footage of their crying parents are flashed on television nationwide. The tragedy of these events is so heart-wrenching that people immediately call for parents to be licensed, stronger power for the emergency takeover of communications to alert people when a child is abducted, 
and implantable microchips that can track children for their safety. The government introduces emergency legislation, and a government-affiliated company announces that they have developed an implantable tracking chip. I just described the child abduction flap of 2002. Understanding the problem-reaction-solution paradigm and how it is being used to steer the world towards a prison planet is the basis of this book. The name of the game is Order Out of Chaos. Keep this system in mind as you digest each piece of information, and the reality of modern-day developments will be revealed before your eyes. End quote. Continuing, I read from Chapter 2 of Order Out of Chaos, entitled The History of Tyrants, A Lesson from the Past. Quote, History is replete with examples of tyrants, dictatorships, and even apparently accountable governments using the Hegelian dialectic discussed in the introduction. None of them can resist killing innocent people to further a political agenda. In this context, ruling authorities, in order to ruthlessly centralize power into their own hands, have used a tactic conventionally ascribed to terrorists. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Nero Claudius Caesar was, by far, one of the most infamous Roman emperors ever. His rule of Rome lasted from AD 54 to 68. A little-known fact is that Nero actually began his reign as a fairly popular leader, banning capital punishment, reducing taxes, and letting slaves bring lawsuits against their masters. However, after around five years, Nero's temperament fell apart. His senior advisors began to die, and his overbearing ego came to the fore. Absolute power began to corrupt absolutely. Even before Rome burned, Nero passed a series of treason laws which put anyone to death who was considered a threat. This enabled him to eliminate his political rivals and even his own wife and mother. Nero needed a pretext to justify turning the new laws against the civilian population, and specifically the Christians who, although still relatively unpopular, were rising in prominence. The Christians lambasted the empire for its decadent practices and pagan worship. On the night of July 18, 64 AD, a fire started that would, after a week, turn 70% of Rome to ash. Historians differ as to whether or not Nero was actually in Rome when the disaster began. Certainly, Nero returned to his palace as the fire roared at its peak. He composed poetry and sang as his people burned to death. This is where the saying, Nero fiddled while Rome burned, came from. While Nero fiddled, he had ordered his guards to patrol the streets, making sure efforts to extinguish the blaze were thwarted. Attempts to do so were prevented by Nero's menacing gangs. Torches were openly thrown in to fan the flames by men crying that they acted under orders. These actions caused a rumor to circulate the city, namely that Nero himself had started the blaze. Whether he had given the order to start it or simply let it burn is debatable, but the consequences are not. Nero immediately blamed the Christians for setting the fire. His only evidence was that Christians had identified other Christians as the perpetrators. This was after they were brutally tortured to make such a confession, of course. Since the fires began in the poor areas of the city, it isn't logical to suspect the Christians. They lived in those poor areas. If they wanted to make a statement, why would they burn down their own homes and not Nero's palace? Nero was the only person who stood to gain from setting the city ablaze. He hated the disjointed layout of the city and wanted to rebuild it in his own image. As soon as the fires were put out, work began on a total redesign of the city, along with several new palaces in Nero's honor. Meanwhile, the Christian scapegoats were ripped limb from limb by the lions in the circus and used as human torches. Nero had achieved two aims by burning Rome, 
or at least allowing it to burn. He had completely renovated the city and eliminated an underground threat to both his authority and his ego. Nero's short-term future was secured, however, his act of tyranny brought about divine retribution. The horrific treatment of the Christians turned them into martyrs, such as Peter and Paul. The people of Rome began to sympathize with their suffering, and Nero's empire self-destructed after his suicide in AD 68. Diocletian's Unity in the Empire The Roman Emperor Diocletian came to power in 284 AD. He was an army general with a repressive disdain of his subjects. Diocletian ran his government as a general runs an army, giving orders and expecting them to be carried out. He believed that only severe restrictions on personal freedoms could bring order to the empire. By 301 AD, after the conclusion of conflicts with the Germans and the Sassanids, Diocletian needed a new enemy to justify his tyrannical form of government. At the same time, the emperor declared the economy to be in crisis and implemented astronomical taxation increases. Amongst the people there surfaced a gradual unrest towards Diocletian's economic policy. The emperor needed a new enemy to regain the support of his pseudo-slaves. After the earlier successful persecution of the Manichaeans, Diocletian slowly turned his head in the direction of the Christians, his thumb pointing down. This came despite the fact that he had largely ignored them for the past 15 years. Across the empire, Christians made up around 10% of the population, their number having doubled in about 50 years. Two kings had been converted, the king of Osroen in northeastern Mesopotamia and the king of Armenia. Christians were serving in Rome's armies, and they were working as civil servants in local government or in lowly positions on the imperial staff. Diocletian could see his scapegoat. In the autumn of 302 AD, Diocletian visited Antioch in Syria for an official engagement. Prior to this, of course, there had to take place the customary pagan sacrifice. However, this time there was a problem. As the bloodletting ritual began, so did the vocal denouncements of the onlooking Christians. Many made cross signs to ward off the evil influence of the sacrifice. Prominent amongst these brave dissenters was a Christian named Romanus. Diocletian fumed. In the first, while Diocletian was sacrificing in public, the chief interpreter of the victim's organs reported that he could not read the future in them because of the hostile influence of Christians standing around. Diocletian burst into a rage, insisting that all in his court should offer sacrifice, and sent out orders to his army to follow suit. This provided Diocletian with the perfect opportunity to launch his persecution. Romanus had his tongue cut off and languished in agony for a, over a year after in jail. Meanwhile, the emperor demanded the Christians sacrifice to the gods of the state or face execution. Many refused and further retreated underground in the hopes of avoiding the manic dictates of this mad general. Diocletian's vice-emperor, Galerius, didn't have a hard time in persuading him that if a palace were just to burn down, Diocletian could really accelerate his crusade against the Christians. Just by coincidence, twice within 16 days towards the end of February, Diocletian's palace in Nicomedia burned. The Christians were immediately blamed. A monumental crackdown then occurred as Diocletian issued four edicts against the Christians. Christian assemblies were forbidden, Bibles were confiscated and burned, and churches were destroyed. Christians were torn limb from limb in the arena, the animals goaded on by a mindless population who had accepted at face value the guilt of the Christians. Others were imprisoned and offered release if they appeased the emperor's sick pagan bloodlust and made one sacrifice. The majority refused, yet Diocletian wanted disunity within the Christian ranks, and so had some marked down as having made a sacrifice, even though they didn't.
The purges slowly and intermittently dragged on into the year 305, but by now the Christians had become too numerous across the empire to be wiped out. The despot Diocletian retired through illness in 305 AD. The vice-emperor in the east, Galerius, began a joint rule of the empire with the vice-emperor in Rome and the west, Constantius. Constantius died in battle in 306 AD, and his son, Constantine, succeeded him. The thousands of Christians butchered by Diocletian in the purge had not died in vain. Constantine was to change the world by becoming the first Christian emperor. Balance of Power Hitler and the Reichstag Adolf Hitler knew that he could never overthrow the existing German Republic and name himself Führer without the aid of a carefully stage-managed crisis. In early 1933, the German Weimar Republic was awash with different parties lobbying for control. Although the Nazis had the majority, this was not enough to give Hitler the unchallenged and unaccountable office he craved. Furthermore, the Nazis were losing momentum in the months preceding the election, which was set for March 1933. When Hermann Goering took control of the Prussian state police, he replaced officers loyal to the Republic with officers loyal only to Hitler. These SA and SS were trained to despise so-called enemies of the state, and after raiding communist headquarters in Berlin, they acquired a full roster of Communist Party members. The roundup list was already in place. Hitler had erected the police state he would later put to use in anticipation of the imminent burning of the Reichstag. In February of 1933, Hermann Goering, Joseph Goebbels, and Hitler finalized a plan to cause chaos by burning the Reichstag parliament building and then blaming it on their political adversaries, the communists. The three had obviously studied the actions of Nero hundreds of years before. In the week preceding February 27th, a mentally retarded Dutchman named Marinus van der Lubbe wandered around Berlin attempting to set fire to government buildings. The state police, now under Hitler's control, refused to arrest him. After stalking the area all day, on the night of February 27th, van der Lubbe somehow managed to break into the guarded Reichstag. He removed his shirt and set it on fire, vainly attempting to spread the relatively confined blaze to a wider area within the building. He received a large dose of help when Hitler's stormtroopers, led by SA leader Karl Ernst, used an underground passageway that connected Goering's cellar with the cellar in the Reichstag. They entered the building and scattered gasoline and incendiaries to feed the flames. Once they had suitably increased the blaze, they escaped back through the tunnel. Hitler and Goebbels, his propaganda minister, immediately rushed to the scene of the fire and screamed at German news reporters that the communists were to blame. Hitler stated, You are now witnessing the beginning of a great epoch in German history. This fire is the beginning. And from this moment onwards, the official story of the communist plot was repeated ad infinitum across the world's media. Hitler called for the activation of the roundup plans he had arranged before the burning. The German people have been soft too long. Every communist official must be shot. All communist deputies must be hanged this very night. All friends of the communists must be locked up. And that goes for the Social Democrats and the Reichsbanner as well. The very next day, Hitler was able to pass an emergency decree, Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution, which stated, Restrictions on personal liberty, on the right of free expression of opinion, including freedom of the press, on the rights of assembly and association, and violations of the privacy of postal, telegraphic, and telephonic communications, and warrants for house searches, orders for confiscations as well as restrictions on property, are also permissible beyond the legal limits otherwise prescribed. As the communists and other enemies of the state were arrested and tortured, 
Hitler turned his attention to the March 5th elections. Despite massive waves of propaganda, the Nazis only achieved 44% of the total vote. Hitler needed a two-thirds majority in order to legally dismantle the Republic and install himself as Führer. After the elections, Hitler used his emergency decree, along with the SS and SA, to raid the offices of local government and throw out anyone unsympathetic to the Nazi regime, replacing them with those loyal only to him. This is how he would subsequently achieve the majority he needed to become dictator. In the meantime, Hitler pressured President Hindenburg to sign more draconian edicts, making it an offense to criticize the Nazis, and setting up military tribunals where the defenses afforded no jury or legal counsel. These measures steamrolled many Reichstag members into intimidation and ensured their support through fear. End quote. Problem, reaction, solution. Problem, reaction, solution. Problem, reaction, solution. One sees the inevitable progress of human history through this incredibly effective manipulation technique. I urge my listeners to subscribe to PrisonPlanet.tv, where their membership will afford them access not only to that book, Order Out of Chaos, but also to other books, documentaries, interviews, movies, and more. Now, as you can imagine, Order Out of Chaos goes on to describe numerous other examples from history of how Order Out of Chaos, or Problem Reaction Solution, operates. But one example that is highly apropos to those three examples we just looked at of Nero, Diocletian, and Hitler comes from a news story that has been making headlines in the last few weeks in Austin, Texas. This comes from PrisonPlanet.com, June 9, 2008. Suspicion surrounds Governor's Mansion fire. News station questions how blaze that gutted 152-year-old building could have been started under watchful eye of surveillance cameras and DPS troopers. Quote, a fire that gutted the governor's mansion in Austin, Texas on Sunday morning has been confirmed as arson, and authorities are studying evidence to help finger the perpetrator. Could the culprit turn out to be a 9-11 truther or anti-war demonstrator and conveniently give police the excuse to create a no-protest lockdown zone around a location that has become popular for demonstrations? We still have evidence that we collected on the scene that indicates this is an intentionally set fire, State Fire Marshal Paul Maldonado told the Dallas Morning News, though it was also reported that there was no evidence that the fire was politically motivated. Having personally visited and held demonstrations in the vicinity of the building on many occasions, Alex Jones remarked that security is watertight and that individuals are approached and questioned as soon as they get near the building by Austin police. For someone to have started a fire both inside and at the entrance of the building, as some reports indicate, is virtually impossible, according to Jones. On his nationally syndicated radio show today, Jones speculated that the fire could have been staged as an excuse to crack down on Austin's vociferously active freedom movement. Local Austin news station KXAN has also noted suspicion expressed by many who are wondering how someone successfully started the fire under the watchful eye of surveillance cameras as well as DPS troopers. Maldonado said authorities do not know where the fire started. DPS troopers were on scene guarding the property when the fire started, according to Captain Paul Schultz of the DPS. Schultz could not elaborate on the number of troopers guarding the property, citing the governor's security measures, according to the report. Officials have indicated that surveillance tapes show just one person starting the fire, but are investigating whether others are involved. End quote. 
Again, starting fires and blaming it on their political enemies seems to be a bit of a recurring theme throughout history. But fires and even terrorist attacks like 9-11 are certainly not the only way in which the ruling financial oligarchs manipulate society through thesis, antithesis, synthesis. As that passage from Order Out of Chaos noted, the right-left-communist-fascist dichotomy was also set up by the financial oligarchs as a way of manipulating society through the 20th century. That both Hitler and Lenin, both the Nazis and the Bolsheviks, were funded by the Western Anglo-American establishment is beyond dispute and well-documented, and something that we will be covering in future episodes of the Corbett Report. But to get more information about how this dichotomy, this fascist-communist dichotomy, has been used to produce a synthesis favorable to the ruling elite, I contacted Philip D. Collins and Paul Collins, two writers, researchers, and authors who have been featured in the Corbett Report podcast in the past. Perhaps their best-known work is The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, an excellent study of the way in which the oligarchs have been waging an epistemological battle on the population to establish the scientific dictatorship. We're going to listen to an excerpt from my interview with Paul and Philip Collins, in which Philip Collins discusses the nature of the fascist-slash-communist dichotomy and how that plays into the Hegelian dialectic as a way of manipulating and controlling the direction that society unfolds in. Let's listen to Philip Collins describing that process. Um, basically, what, according to Hegel, what you had, you, you'd have are two ideational entities, a thesis and an antithesis, and those would uh, conflict with one another, and then they would gradually migrate towards a synthesis. Now, um, what Karl Marx did, Karl Marx uh, uh, latched a hold of uh, Hegel's, uh, uh, Hegel's uh, dialectical theory, he redirected it towards the socio-economic, uh, the socio-economic realm. Now, being that Marx was uh, strictly atheist, uh, strictly an atheist, he uh, removed any uh, theistic uh, gloss to the theory whatsoever, and basically turned it into a methodology, a, a, a socio-political methodology. Um, and so what Marx did was Marx basically, uh, he, he, he conceived of uh, history unfolding in a dialectical fashion, and um, that's, where, that's from whence we have uh, the, the theories of uh, the bourgeoisie and uh, the working class uh, basically uh, conflicting with one another and uh, gradually migrating towards the synthesis, which would be the Marxist paradise stateless socialism. But um, down throughout history, the, the Hegelian dialectic has basically been adopted by uh, several oligarchs who uh, essentially look at it as, as, as a method of basically bringing about their great synthesis, which, uh, it, which in the end is, is a one-world socialist totalitarian system. Um, now, one, uh, one, of the, one of the reasons that the, dialectic, that the dialectic works the way that it does is because the two ideational entities that are pitted against one another, the polar extremes, that the antithesis and thesis, 
they on some level are fundamentally the, the same they're not dichotomously related because they share certain crucial commonalities and uh, uh, for instance uh, communism against fascism that's one of the uh, most uh, the most uh, well-known uh, Hegelian dialectics uh, the, the uh, commonality between communism and fascism is uh, demonstrable in the etymology of the two systems themselves uh, communism is derived from the Latin uh, word communis, which means group. Uh, likewise, fascism was derived from the Italian word fascio, which also means group. And it's herein that you find a key commonality between the two ideational entities, and that uh, commonality is collectivism, the exaltation of the collective and the subordination of the uh, individual to that collective. So. It was uh, this this com this commonality basically made the two compatible. And by the way, fascism, yes, uh, fascism did uh, have this ostensible observance of private property rights, but those private property rights were uh, basically susceptible to rigid governmental regulation, and as such, uh, amounted to mere pageantry. So. Really, there's there was there's there there was really very little difference between fascism and communism. In, in fact, um, uh, Adolf Hitler uh, once uh, candidly uh, confessed to um, uh, 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 I forget I forget the uh, individual, but he confessed uh, in the book uh, Hitler Speaks uh, that the whole Herman Rochning yes Herman Rochning uh, he confessed that the whole of National Socialism was uh, based on Marx, so so already you see you see the commonalities of the two ideational entities, and that was what gave way to their uh, eventual migration towards uh, towards a synthesis. Um, uh, so so essentially that that's how that's that's the how the that's the background on the Hegelian dialectic. That's how it. it uh, functions and how it works. Now again, I apologize for the poor audio quality of that recording, and I remind my listeners that they can help to improve our recording quality by helping with the chip-in event on the front page of CorbettReport.com to donate to help raise funds for a new telephone to conduct telephone interviews. But despite the poor audio quality, I hope that the importance of what Philip Collins was pointing out in that interview extract was not lost. Indeed, his point is well taken that the thesis and antithesis in the Hegelian dialectic does not necessarily represent ideas that have no relation to each other. In fact, they have a very strong relation, and at points even converge. Fascism and communism are, of course, just different expressions of the idea of collectivism, which is the natural synthesis in a thesis and antithesis of a dialectic involving those two ideational entities. And indeed, as G. Edward Griffin points out in our newest YouTube documentary, collectivism is most assuredly the system which the elite ruling oligarchs want to impose on us. Again, I would suggest that my listeners check out the entire interview with Paul and Philip Collins as we go into great depth and detail about the Hegelian dialectic, and we also talk about Paul and Philip Collins' research. If you'd like to support their research, I highly suggest that you buy their works, including The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. 
Now, in order to find out more about Hegel and where the idea for the dialectic really came from, I turned to Alan Watt, a researcher that we featured in episode 41 of the Corbett Report. Recently, I called into Alan Watt's Cutting Through the Matrix program to ask Mr. Watt about the real origins of the dialectic idea. Now we'll go to the caller in Japan. It's James. Are you there? Hello, Mr. Watt. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I'm doing some research for my podcast right now at CorbettReport.com, and I wanted to draw on your vast historical knowledge to ask you about GWF Hegel. Now, your audience is probably familiar with the idea of problem-reaction-solution, by which the ruling oligarchs manage to move society in whatever direction they wish by playing both sides of a crisis and then presenting their phony solution, which, of course, is just their, their way of pushing society in whatever direction they want. And this is usually traced back to Hegel and the Hegelian dialectic, the thesis, antithesis, leads to synthesis. But I suspect this knowledge is probably part of the ancient knowledge by which the oligarchs have been ruling over free humanity for centuries, if not millennia. And I was wondering, what can you tell us about Hegel and where he might have gotten the idea for the dialectic? Well, Hegel himself belonged to uh, Masonic orders, uh, Rosicrucian orders, and he was heavily backed by... Uh, to uh, paid just to he's actually quite mad in some respects he took um, fits where he'd have to be locked up for a while inside his own apartment but he was looked after by some very rich and powerful people uh, who sponsored him uh, to sit and write this kind of material but you're quite right uh, he didn't come up with the idea uh, his whole thing was to try and write in such a way for a new time a new period where it would fit together with the coming Superman. That's behind all of these writings, is the, the coming of the new Superman, which was a, an actual belief system of the Rosicrucian society. It still is. Uh, that there'd be an old man, and through evolution, through scientific means, they could create a new type of uh, perfected superhuman. And the Germans also took that off into the Superman idea. And... Uh, uh, you, as you say, ancient society is perfectly well understood because all it is is military strategy. Uh, military strategy, uh, they plan a battle. The enemy often doesn't know what's going to occur. Uh, they, they say, when we move here, the enemy will then react this way and then hopefully through the conflict we'll get them to go that way. That's, that's your uh, synthesis. It's always the synthesis that they're after and they use... You, they use an action made by them, followed by a counter-reaction made by, by the opposing force, and then they get to where they want to go in the first place. And that was the whole idea of setting up uh, the, the Soviet system and uh, to eventually blend, as Lenin talked, with the West. Uh, there are no sides in this in actuality. Uh, they knew there's different mentalities within human nature, so they would give us sides to join. Classes were very important to join one side or another. But there really was one, one hand at the top behind this um, because it falls under economics. And it's to do with basically um, the principle of materialism. Both capitalism and communism deal solely in the material world uh, with materials and economics. That's what they're based on. And so the, the idea was through uh, 
giving you conflict through oppositions, you will come to an understanding, then a merger, and out of that you have your synthesis, which is to be the new world order, or as Bertrand Russell called, said, a world run by experts and bureaucracies. Well, that's exactly what we have. But, yeah, Hegel himself was put there, as many of these people are, and sponsored and paid handsomely by very rich, powerful people. Absolutely. In fact, your description of Hegel being sort of um, locked up in a room and, you know, handled by people above him sounds to me exactly like Marx and the way he was also handled by rich industrialists. You'll find this with all of them. You see, how you make a star is quite easy. Uh, you, you make a star by telling the people you're going to bring forward the star. And you build it up and build it up in the media. In those days, it was newspapers and magazines. They did the same with, with Darwin. No one had heard of Darwin. He was unknown. And they wanted to make him a star. And when he eventually came out with his, his book, he was already made, you see. So they, they built it up by waving the wand. Uh, the public anticipation was geared up. And suddenly he's a star. And then he's boosted by the institutions that already and the foundations that already were running the world in those days. And they make it so exciting. It's meant to grab the youth, especially with, um, with Hegel. And even Nietzsche was the same. Nietzsche was very, very similar, in fact, in temperament. And um, he also wrapped in the whole Superman theory and the evolution of mankind. That all goes back to Darwinism, which is a chief, again, a chief belief in all high masonry and the high, uh, what we call, occultic side of it, of which really, um, it does exist. It's not the little boys at the bottom uh, with the aprons on. It's the big boys at the top with the real story. And uh, it's all, as I say, it's all based on materialism, the concept of material world uh, without um, any deity uh, looking over you. Um, this new world order, in fact, will be the worst and the most severe system we've ever seen. We saw that, uh, that a touch of that in the Soviet system, uh, where they were utterly ruthless. They wiped out millions of people over many, many years, and uh, they went after all religions. Uh, it was worse under Khrushchev. Khrushchev persecuted all churches, violent more so than Stalin ever did. And uh, there's no trial. You're just simply rounded up and killed. And this new world order, we can see it already, there's no moral background behind it whatsoever. It's based on materialism, a psychopathic-type system, and where might is right. And it will be horrific when it all comes down. So if this knowledge already existed centuries before Hegel, why then was it necessary to get Hegel to actually bring this to the public domain? Why is that such an important part Most of their agenda? Books are written for recruits. It, it changes the mindset of, of thousands and thousands of youngsters who get caught up in it and excited, and they become willing workers towards it to help bring it, a society as is envisaged, into actual existence. So to a certain extent, then, people like Marx, who took Hegel's ideas, may have actually been, in their own mind, really sort of acolytes of that idea, rather than to some ancient esoteric idea. Uh, that too, but they, they also did attend the Masonic Lodges. Um, a good book to read is one written by Trotsky. It's called My Life. And in that book, he tells you that he joined the, the Masonic Lodge and that everyone in Russia, uh, who was anybody, belonged to it at that time. 
Very interesting. Thank you very much for all of that information, Mr. Watt. Thanks for coming. Alan Watt and his vast historical knowledge can be accessed at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. There are a number of leads to follow from that conversation, but as always, I encourage my listeners to use this information as the basis for their own research. Please get out there, get active, and see how you can apply this principle to make light of current events and historical events. There's no doubt that this is one of the methods through which the masters of war, the puppeteers behind the scenes, control society in their attempt to herd us into the new world order. But the amazing thing is that by getting informed and by working to get others informed of these key manipulation techniques, they lose their power. This system can only work if we're ignorant of its existence. By understanding how these ideas have been ready presented to us in order for a certain solution to be the natural outcome, we can break free of this left-right controlled paradigm thinking, which will only ever lead us in one direction, that of enslavement, not, as Hegel would have it, the realization of the spirit's freedom. That's all for today. Thank you for joining me, and join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. We got vegetarian gumbo stew, the rock and pneumonia, the punk rock flu. We got Ico, Ico and Staggerly, and the junk upon leaning against the tweet. We got Emma Goldman and Chomsky too. We got things to say, we got stuff to do. We got all kind of freedom fighters gathered here. We got a friends in the corner over there drinking beer. Speak about the future. Eagle in his book examines free will as something which can only realize itself within the paradigm of a thesis and antithesis. Hegel and his followers believed it was the duty of the state to institutionalize political conflict of interest so that progress is made, or in his words, the state is God's march on earth. Now, consider your own political situation. Do you believe we are free? Do you believe that you have a choice where we're heading? 